Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick. And oh boy, I'm excited because it's Anomalous Historical Photograph Day on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Uh, Today we are going to be talking about a moderately famous underwater image that has been classified by some as an anomaly. Now, I I think it's debatable whether the word anomaly could or should still be applied to it, because uh, I guess normally anomaly is defined as something that, like, is different from what is normal or expected, or at least appears to be different from what is normal or expected. I don't know if you can still apply that to a photo that you pretty much have conclusively identified and and sorted into the mundane category now, but still looks weird. Maybe we can adjudicate that later in the episode. But anyway, one thing that is interesting about anomalous photographs in our culture is that the anomaly kind of has a secondary definition beyond just something that uh, is or appears to be different from what is normal or expected. And that secondary definition is proof of aliens confirmed. Yes. Yeah. Um, this is a this is a topic we've we've touched on a little bit before. I mean, things have come up like, um, you know, supposed ancient uh, etchings or carvings of dinosaurs. Um, I remember uh, we we did a, at least a, one episode on that in the past, and then you can also apply this to things like photographs of Bigfoot, uh, photographs of strange lights in the sky, and so forth. Um, and granted, especially in those two categories, you often get into situations where there is often a strong case to be made for intentional fakery, uh, mm-hmm. on top of all the other things that can be going on with a photograph. You know, actual photographic anomalies. Um, uh, atmospheric anomalies, uh, and so forth. Uh, today's episode deals with an image that is not a work of fakery. It is an, an, a- an actual image that was gathered through uh, scientific exploration. Um, but without proper expertise, you can easily see 
well, basically anything you want out of it. Um, you know, it, it, the, the thing about an, uh, an anomaly like this, um, uh, quote unquote, is that, um, yeah, whatever your preconceived notions happen to be, you can easily attach them to this thing, especially if you don't have that expertise and you don't have that sort of, um, I don't know, general open mindedness about what it might be. Right. This is one of many cases where if you don't have the requisite contextual knowledge, something that is initially just a weird looking photograph can take on all kinds of significance. And in fact, there has been a historical mythology built around this this one weird photo we're going to talk about today. But I think before we get into uh, the the photo we're talking about in today's episode, uh, since this is going to touch on the uh, the idea of proof of aliens confirmed and uh, and and UFO lore and all that. Uh, I feel like it's it's fair to sort of just announce where we're coming from. We've talked about this somewhat on the show before, and we've actually gotten some recent listener mail where people were asking us to address the recent news about so-called UFO disclosures. So to do that at the top, uh, Rob, I don't want to speak for you, but I think we're probably on roughly the same page here. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, despite the recent flurry of excitement, and if you haven't kept up with it, uh, the short version is there was recently whistleblower testimony in front of a House Oversight Subcommittee in the U.S. Congress from a man who claims that uh, people have told him that the U.S. government knows aliens exist and we are in possession of crashed spacecraft and alien bodies, etc. There uh, is no hard evidence publicly available. He's saying people told him this. Uh, so despite the excited media coverage about this, uh, my personal position remains basically unchanged. And I would characterize that as regarding the, the topic of alien contact or alien visitation of Earth uh, with curiosity and open mindedness, but uh, strong skepticism. Yeah, yeah. And, and I do want to drive home. It's, it's perfectly all right to be excited by all of this. I mean, the, the, the idea that somebody's testifying about this in front of the uh, House Oversight Subcommittee is uh, is pretty exciting. And he's saying some pretty exciting things. And you can't help but, but ask, well, if true, what does that mean? <laughs> and it raises a lot of questions. But but yeah, um, I, I think there are some, some legitimate uh, questions to be raised before you really take all that to the bank. Um, and plus, as we've talked about on the show before, the idea of, of alien life, it's a complex question, you know, the deeper you go. There's obviously a big difference between saying, yes, I think there is something else alive in the universe and saying, yes, I think there are other life forms. They're technologically advanced. They have spaceships and they have visited us. And, oh, some of our secret advanced technology today is based on things that we uh, were able to pilfer from their crashes. So, like, is there life? Is there intelligent life? To paraphrase Arthur C. Clarke, any answer to any such question, I think, is equally mind-blowing, right? That's right. And I, I think it's very good to disentangle those two questions. One, the question of whether aliens exist at all somewhere out there. On that question, I think we just don't have enough information to decide. Uh, so there, I don't even really lean one way or another on that uh, as, as of today. I think it's just totally open question, not enough information to judge. Yeah, I mean, there you could basically say, well, there is, there isn't, and to get more directly to the Arthur C. Clarke um, yeah, a quote about this, like either either answer is just absolutely stunning to say that we are completely alone in the universe, that we are the anomaly, uh, our planet of life, or to say, oh yeah, there is somewhere out there, there is a planet of life, and it may be just so far from us. Um, 
it's so far from us that also questions of, of when uh, become complex to think about. But yeah, it could be out there and we will simply never know about it. And it will never know about us. You know, I mean, it's all of this is just mind blowing to, to contemplate. But while I think alien existence overall is a totally open question, visitation is a question where I guess my my standards are a little bit different and I do start to have a lean on that question. Uh, I, I will say I'm not one of those people who thinks it's like gross or shameful to even investigate the idea of, of alien contact on Earth. Like uh, I, I sometimes see skeptical scientists like getting getting angry about like uh, Avi Loeb coming out in the news and saying, oh, I'm, I'm combing the seafloor looking for metal spheres to run tests on them. And and I think maybe they're aliens. Um, I understand their frustration with him sort of maybe jumping the gun on the conclusion and, and overhyping results to say, I think there are aliens. But I mean, I think it's fine to investigate if that interests you, as long as you are objective about what you find and you don't misrepresent or overhype inconclusive results to the media, which I, I think is a legitimate thing to get kind of annoyed about. And that is the main thing that I think a lot of skeptics find annoying about that sort of project. It is kind of interesting that if a scientist is talking about um, putting like shrimp on a treadmill or something of that effect um, or of that sort of nature, there's always the, um, the, the, the follow up question. Oh, have you said if you have you solved the, the problem of cancer yet? Have you have you I guess you've 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 tackled all of these other big scientific problems. But generally, I don't hear that criticism um, leveled at um, UFO uh, uh, scientists and so forth. They're not like, well, wait, why are you not not uh, curing cancer? Why are you looking for UFOs? I don't know. Uh, you can interpret that how you wish. Well, that is interesting. I mean, I guess I would say uh, scientifically in looking for evidence of alien visitation of Earth is like a kind of a high-risk, high-reward strategy. It's sort of a gambit. Mm -hmm. It's like you... I mean, here I'm speaking with, you know, my personal opinion. I'd say you are very, very likely wasting your time. But on the off chance you're not, you will make the most important discovery in human history. True. Yeah. So it's a it's a big gamble. It's it's like, you know, it's the lotto, right? You know that the odds are just astronomical, but the prize is enormous. So you go ahead and you buy your ticket and you scratch it off. But anyway, but coming back to the question of like evidence for alien visitation, I would be, you know, I'm not like somebody who doesn't want to find out about this. I would be extremely interested and excited if there were any good reason to believe aliens ever came to Earth. But I have been interested in this topic and never seen evidence that was even close to convincing. And furthermore, what I have seen is like a pattern of behavior, a pattern of behavior from alien contact advocates of presenting bad evidence as good or promising that there is good evidence somewhere else, maybe being hidden from you, maybe soon to be revealed, and you'd be really convinced if you saw that, but for some reason you can't. And so that pattern of behavior, I would say, con has conditioned me, like it puts my guard up about any explosive claims on this subject, even if they're being listened to by Congress. So, uh, you know, at this point, I'm 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 still I would say I am still waiting for good evidence and I reserve judgment until good evidence actually shows up that, you know, like that people can look at. I like how you're you're always up for the possibility. For me, if I'm being honest, there's some weeks where I'm like, this is not a good week, y'all. Uh, if if, <laughs> if we are going to discover uh, that the alien visitations have been occurring and there's like definite proof, 
that I, I just would prefer that it happen like maybe next month because uh, I've got a lot going on right now. Well, that's a good point. I, I'd say also, yeah, there are some weeks I'm I'm more ready to meet the grays than than <laughs> other ones. Now, one thing I want to stress is, that, you know, what we're talking about here is the the sort of questing for objective evidence and uh, how often there is a lack of objective evidence here. And I do want to stress something that we've uh, we've touched on before regarding subjective experiences. Subjective paranormal experiences are certainly real to those who experience them, and they can clearly be life-changing in a number of ways. So, you know, you or people you know may have had these experiences. You may have seen something you couldn't completely explain. Uh, and as humans, we've always had such experiences, and we can apply skepticism and scientific logic to why these, ex- these experiences occurred. You know, in short, supernatural or, or the otherworldly explanations are rarely necessary, but we still have to acknowledge the impact of the experience. Right. And this is a thing that I think makes the UFO subject kind of difficult because a lot of people who are very devoted to belief in UFOs have in some sense had like an experience of their own or they, Mm -hmm. you know, they're like personally connected to this subject. And so it's very important to stress that like, while you've got to keep your skeptical standards of of evidence up when you're actually saying, have aliens really been here? You know, you want to have a high standard of evidence, but at the same time, be sensitive to people and say like, us looking for that standard of evidence is not a, a personal critique of of you as a person having had an experience. You know, it is very common for people to have strange experiences that they don't know how to explain. And it's uh, even if maybe e- aliens are not the best actual explanation according to the evidence we have, it it's not unreasonable that some people would, I don't know, seek an explanation of that sort when they've had a very powerful, unexplainable experience. Right. Something you can't explain happens. You look for answers. You also look for patterns in the world around you. But as you look for answers, you also encounter pre-existing scripts to try and make sense of what that was. Mm -hmm. And if it's lights in the sky, well, there are a few ready-made scripts that are probably the easiest to absorb that have like social support. Some of them are religious. Some of them do relate to things like, um, like, like, like space aliens and so forth. And so it makes sense that you would latch onto those to make sense of what happened to you. And uh, and yeah, that, then you go out into the world, you look for patterns, you look for supporting information. Now, here's where we're going to start moving back toward our uh, anomalous photo of the day or supposedly anomalous photo of the day. There is a counter to everything we've been saying so far, which is sometimes people will say, uh, well, OK, maybe you're not impressed with everything you've seen so far. But what about this photo of a triangular arrangement of lights or this video uh, of a white object moving across the sky or this object on the seafloor that looks like a piece of alien radar equipment, etc. There are a lot of pieces of media out there, a lot of photo and video and sometimes sound recording and stuff where people can say, this looks weird or this sounds weird. I can't think of anything that I know of on Earth that would produce an image like this. So shouldn't all of that stuff count as evidence of aliens? And this brings me to a concept that uh, I've been thinking about recently that is really just based on an an offhand uh, phrase I heard when I was, I honestly don't remember exactly which interview this came from, but I was listening to a series of interviews with a science writer and skeptical UFO researcher named Mick West. Uh, West, is he's written articles for skeptical publications about uh, 
all kinds of subjects. You've written about chemtrails and things like that, but also about UFOs of late and has done analysis of popular UFO or UAP videos to try to figure out if you can actually identify what is it we're looking at in this video where just some kind of weird object appears to move across the sky. And in many cases, he is able to identify. In some cases, he's not. Um, and so I apologize if I'm not using uh, West's exact preferred terminology here, but this is just what I heard him say offhand uh, in one moment. And it was the idea of something called the low information zone. Uh, I think maybe another way to think about the same idea would be to call it the zone of low resolution, with low resolution referring in the specific sense to photographs and other attempts at imaging that produce a blurry or fuzzy or indistinct product, but also to think about low resolution in a broader sense where it would refer to records or pieces of media or accounts, any type of evidence that contain lower than desirable ratios of identifying detail and are generally lacking in context and clarity. I think this concept is really useful when talking about UFOs or UAPs, where it seems to me uh, West's sort of generalization is that all of the pieces of evidence for aliens or other non-human intelligence making contact on Earth that remain somewhat interesting or still seem kind of unsolved or viable tend to exist in this zone of low information or low resolution, where there's a lot of vagueness, lack of verifiable detail, or lack of context. Essentially, there's not enough information in them that a reasonable observer can be confident that they understand what they're looking at. Meanwhile, when there is evidence in the, the sort of high information zone, say when there's like really good video that's in focus and has proper foreground, background for scale, and, and has, has a lot of information in it, it seems like it's specifically those cases that are more likely to turn out to have provable, clear, identifiable, mundane explanations. These turn out to be plastic bags or balloons or airplanes or stars or well-known digital artifacts produced by cameras and other types of sensors. Yeah, this is also where intentional fakery tends to come out as well. Oh, yeah. And I thought this was interesting because uh, I do not at all want to represent myself as a UFO expert. I'm not in any way, but it just sort of squares with my experience as a generalist, like researching extremely variegated, supposedly anomalous phenomena throughout history. You know, we've covered a lot of subjects like this on the show at some point, especially with things that have been claimed as proof of aliens or proof of the supernatural or whatever. It seems it's very often in the cases where information quality is high that you're most likely to nail down a, an alternative explanation to figure out, ah, here's what's going on. Uh, it, it does have an explanation. The explanation is mundane or within the range of known causes and so forth. And it's in cases where the information quality is very low, where details are vague or uncheckable, where crucial context is missing and so forth that you end up having to shrug your shoulders and say, I don't know what we're looking at. I don't know what this is. Don't know what the explanation is. And in that case, if a UFO enthusiast is, is so inclined, they could say, aha, you don't know what it is. Therefore, proof of aliens confirmed. Yeah, this reminds me, too, of, um, you know, you can also look at various uh, you know, signals um, 
uh, that have been um, uh, seem to be observed, uh, you know, coming from elsewhere in the cosmos, um, sounds that have uh, been recorded coming from the deep ocean, things where uh, you know there's some there are some definitely some strong uh, hypotheses regarding uh, these various uh, anomalies. But uh, but at the end of the day, can you 100% say what it is? Well, not necessarily. And therefore, the window is left cracked at least a little bit, maybe maybe cracked a lot uh, a, a lot further open, depending on your willingness to uh, interpret it uh, a certain way. Uh, but it remains open somewhat to some of these more far-fetched explanations. And then you can go the extra mile and say, oh, well, prove to me that the bloop is not the sound of mighty Cthulhu rising in the deep. Yeah, elder gods, disprove or accept. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. 
And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So uh, I, I guess the question from a reasoning standpoint is, if you accept, and I think most people will probably recognize this at some level, you'd be kind of familiar with this even beyond like UFOs and stuff. This is just kind of true in life. Mm-hmm. If you accept this pattern is generally true, that evidence one could hold up as viable in terms of proving something weird, a weird explanation, tends to exist in the low information zone, whereas evidence in the high information zone is very likely to end up pointing to a mundane explanation. Should this pattern itself influence how you think about evidence of alien life? I would say, personally, I don't think it should bias at all your starting assumptions about whether aliens exist, because as we said again uh, early on, that's like that's just like not really within our search space for evidence, uh, at least so far. So open question there. But I think it probably should increase your resistance to putting apparently anomalous but low information observations into the could be aliens basket because, you know, this pattern exists. There's lots of stuff like this. There are many analogies, but usually the higher you are able to turn up the resolution on what you're looking at, the more information you can add, the more context you can get, the more, you know, the, the sharper you can make the contours of the image itself the less likely it is that aliens are going to seem like a good explanation and the more likely you are to be like, oh, that's a plastic bag or like, oh, that's a recognizable animal. And I think maybe that'll bring us to the case today, a case of an underwater photograph that has been dubbed the Eltanen antenna. Or maybe if we don't think it's an antenna in the end, should we call it like the Eltanen object? Uh, yeah, that's fair. Uh, I have wondered, like, everyone keeps calling it the L10 and antenna. Why not just call it the Eltena? It seems like the, like the natural <laughs> direction to go in. But, but yeah, the, the, this is going to be a good one to discuss because it is a, a thing that uh, an image that, that was completely embraced by ufologists and, um, and sort of paranormal interpretations and continues to be held up in many circles. Um, uh, as being this kind of icon of the paranormal in proof of something, uh, you know, what that something is, depending on, you know, your exact case that you're making for like the secret nature of reality. Um, And yet at the same time, um, we know exactly what it is. I mean, experts who know uh, their way around uh, deep sea organisms and um, and the sorts of things you'd expect to find in the deep ocean um, do not seem to have had any, they don't seem like they've had any doubts about this for a number of decades. In fact, um, it, it's not that long after the image was taken that we have a, a pretty solid and convincing answer that everyone seems to be satisfied with outside of the paranormal investigation world. Uh, yes, I would say to be as fair as possible to the people who want a, a, a paranormal or alien explanation you can't know for sure what it is because, like, you can't go back and check it. Like, this is mm-hmm. was a sort of transient phenomenon somewhere in the bottom of the ocean. So we can't go back 
to the exact spot and say, oh, is it still there and check it? But I'd say 99.9% sure we know what it was. Yeah, there's something else that would explain this photo and would be found naturally in the place where it was taken. All right, well, let's roll out the story here. And the story, I have to say, does start off with a number of elements that, that already sound kind of um, supernatural uh, because the story concerns the USNS El Tannen an ice-breaking cargo vessel named after a star in the Draco constellation. And I believe the name El Tannen derives from the Arabic for the Great Serpent. That's all just too good. Off to a good start, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so it already yeah, leans into some supernatural ideas here, right? Um, but basically, back in 1964, it was working as an oceanographic uh, research vessel in the Antarctic Ocean, which it did for more than a decade. Uh, the research crew used it to gather a great deal of data, um, and it was it was used um, to discover the hypothetical El Tannen impact crater in 1981 via sediment cores collected uh, earlier. Um, oh, that's something to keep in mind with a lot of this. Like the data is gathered, and then the data has to be analyzed. It's not necessarily being analyzed on the ship. Uh, it's bringing right. this back home, and sometimes it's it's years later that um, some particular find is made. Anyway, the El Tannen impact crater, this was in the South Pacific, and it would have occurred somewhere in the neighborhood of two and a half million years ago. The impact that caused it would have been two and a half million yes. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Not the, not the El Tannen, uh, which then goes back in time in a Twilight Zone <laughs> scenario. Yeah. The ship was also used in part to, to discover Hollister Ridge, a group of seamounts, in 1965. And the ship's work also provided uh, plenty of evidence to support the continental drift theory. And I believe actual specimens of many marine organisms were also collected. So to be clear, this was a hardworking, serious science vessel. Yep. Uh, gave us a, a lot of useful knowledge about the seafloor and the Antarctic Oceans. Yeah. On August 29th, 1964, the crew took sample cores and photographed the seabed west of Cape Horn. And it took a strange photo. Like, it is strange. I mean, I look at it and I have to admit this is weird looking. Um, it's a photo of something at a depth of about 3,904 meters or 12,808 feet. This is the, the image of the so-called El Tannen antenna. Now, I'll probably throw this image up on... Uh, our various uh, uh, accounts where listeners discuss episodes. But in general, you can look up the Altanen antenna on Wikipedia and you'll see this kind of uh, vertical image of the Altanen antenna. But there's also, this is like a, uh, apparently a, a zoom in, a crop of a, of a wider image. And this one is less uh, reproduced. Uh, but for instance, I found it initially on a Twitter post by uh, science writer Tyler Greenfield from June of 2023. Um, so you will see it po posted in various places. And this is this image uh, in particular, I believe, is from a book that I'm going to reference here in just a bit. If you've never seen it or uh, are not able to look it up right now, it looks like a pole jutting up from the seafloor straight up. Mm -hmm. And then it has radial poles that extend out from the central pole at 90 degree angles. So it does look very strange for something you would see on the seafloor. Yeah, it kind of like the image itself is kind of haunting. It is all, you know, black and white kind of looks like a reverse negative image of a popcorn ceiling only upside down. Uh, this is the seafloor with this strange multi-armed antenna like structure or perhaps weather vane like or kind of like a surrealist street sign it has those big uh, uh, knobs on the end that, you know, kind of remind you of like a, a jacks. 
mm, that you know yeah. that you're you're throwing. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, if you if if you want to see an antenna, you, you know, you, you might say, well, this this looks like an antenna, not necessarily an antenna I've seen before, um, but I guess you could make that case because on the other hand. I don't think this really looks like human technology, uh, but at the same time, there do appear to be right angles in the positioning of the arms relative to its trunk or its spine. And so you can see why this image might uh, elicit mystery in many viewers. Now, it's interesting that the comparison to technology goes back to the very first published article about this. Uh, this actually is, so I, I could not find the text of the original article in full, but I found it uh, reproduced in a very good article from the Fortean Times by Peter Brooksmith from May 2004 called The Eltanen Enigma. Uh, this is a very good skeptical article that that pretty much lays out the whole history of the case and uh, tells about the various interpretations as well as gives the almost certain correct mundane explanation of what this is. But in this article, Brooksmith uh, finds and reproduces the original article from the New Zealand Herald from December 1964 called Puzzle Picture from Seabed which was published apparently right after uh, the Altanen came into Auckland and was, I guess, uh, processing or analyzing some of its uh, of its research materials. And so it's docked here in New Zealand, and we get this New Zealand news article, which says, uh, among other things, quote, the photograph, which to a layman shows something like a complex radio aerial jutting out of the mud bottom, was taken on August 29 by a submarine camera. The camera is housed in a metal cylinder pulled along by a cable from the ship. It bounces along the seabed, taking pictures at regular intervals. Dr. Thomas Hopkins, senior marine biologist on board who specializes in plankton studies, says the object could hardly be a plant. Quote, at that depth, there is no light, so photosynthesis could not take place and plants could not live. If it is some strange coral formation, then no one on board has ever heard about it before. Dr. Hopkins, a graduate of the University of Southern California, said the ship's photographer had been thoroughly questioned on how he had developed the photograph. However, everyone was certain the picture was not faked. I wouldn't like to say that the thing is man-made because this brings up the problem of how one would get it there, he says. But it's fairly symmetrical and the offshoots are all 90 degrees apart. This is why it has been argued over for so long. And then the article goes on to say the object is probably about 60 centimeters high or about two feet high. Uh, the photograph is being sent for analysis to some, uh, I think, some labs or University of Southern California. And that's about the end of it. But, ooh, it's funny that while no nowhere in the article is it actually suggested in seriousness that this object is alien or anything like that, it, I think they accidentally laid the groundwork for that kind of mythology to evolve because there is kind of offhanded suggestion of ruling out mundane explanations. Like, couldn't be a plant because, you know, no light gets down there. So that almost sounds to, uh, you know, a very uh, a very enthusiastic pro-UFO type reader saying like, oh, well, then it couldn't be organic at all. Uh, mm -hmm. And then you say, well, it couldn't be human made because, you know, how would you get it down to the bottom of the ocean? And somebody could say that that's right. Couldn't be human. Couldn't be couldn't be a plant. So it couldn't be organic. So, I mean, what's left? So just to refresh, the image has been taken. It's hit the mainstream presses. And yes, at this point, it is picked up by the ufology and sort of fringe uh, segment 
of the population. And, you know, it seems, I don't know if this was the case with you, Joe, it, it seems like there, there might be a lot of this sort of material, especially from like the mid to late 60s, that perhaps just hasn't survived, that isn't, isn't archived, that hasn't been recorded, or if it has, or if the information has been reprinted and reused, maybe the, the attribution uh, system involved there isn't as rigorous as you would find in like scientific reporting and so forth. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, I was wondering about how many things there are like this photo that just like nobody ever noticed and attached any mythology to, you know, <laughs> like yeah. they, they just like never became a, a, a nucleation point for lore but there are just like a weird photo out there that was taken, maybe published in a newspaper article and then forgotten. Like mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, so this originally was just published in a New Zealand Herald article. Uh, I don't know how many people read that, but the right people saw it and found out about it. And that led to, uh, to a whole burgeoning mythology into its inclusion in books and, uh, and articles about UFOs and the paranormal and so forth. Yeah, so it it seems to sort of maybe make the rounds a little bit, but it definitely gets picked up in what, at least in my research, was the earliest book reference that I could actually like pull up on my end. Um, that the the earliest book reference to the um, El Tannen antenna, and this is this would stem from I believe 1968. Um, the book is Harmonic 33 by Bruce Cathy a New Zealand airline pilot who went on to write seven books about UFOs, as well as a supposed world energy grid that powers flying saucers and permits the detonation of atomic explosions, but only at particular juncture points and at specific times. Kathy's work is explored extensively in this article in the 14 Times from 2004 by uh, Brooksmith, and it, uh, it is, what's the right word? I guess just complex. There is a lot of uh, maps and annotation and reading deeply into systems of geographical coordinates and uh, making plots a, a sort of uh, a pattern-seeking run amok. Yeah, what I gather is that Bruce Cathy was an intelligent, determined man who, having had a paranormal encounter of his own, attempted to find some meaning and pattern in alleged sightings around the world, you know, creating maps, drawing these lines, uh, working out different coordinates and, uh, you know, working with descriptions of things that seem like antennas, either antennas that are described on UFOs or, in this case, an image of something that can be interpreted as an antenna. Um, The problem, of course, is that the whole enterprise is constructed with narrow focus and a preconceived conclusion, you know, based in part on sightings, subjective experiences, and also the sort of uh, low-res information. So anyway, the the first edition of this book comes out, I believe, in 1968. But then the 1972 or 1973 reprint of the book actually features that photograph of the Altanen antenna on the cover. You know, with some mm. added, uh, you know, jazzy title design and uh, like a blue tint. And it is very eye-catching. And I think it's important, that eye-catching aspect of this cover and this illustration, I think it's important because you have to, you have to imagine that this book, you know, certainly it's going to connect with various individuals that are interested in the paranormal and UFOs and so forth. But also, it's just going to be on the shelf or, or you know, in the layout 
uh, perhaps in a magazine with other books of this nature. And in a sense, you can imagine how it becomes solidified as a symbol, you know, as one of these sort of articles of faith in the paranormal, alongside things like famous UFO sightings or illustrations, uh, images of Stonehenge and so forth. Ah, so it's not just one instrumental piece of evidence that helps prove your theory about UFOs and alien contact and everything, but it takes on a meaning. It has a kind of significance where it might emotionally feel like if this particular piece of evidence were explained as something actually mundane, it would kind of be an insult to the whole project. Yeah, and uh, but uh, also I think just I don't know. Part of this is me going back to like uh, being in you know being in stores where like they're you know movies or or albums. You know, even if it's not an album that you've listened to or a book you've read or a movie you've seen, like that poster art being displayed among all the others, that uh, that album cover being displayed among all the others. There's kind of this codifying effect. I feel. Mm, yeah. But at any rate, yeah, it's no accident, though, that the Altanen antenna is on the cover there because it does seem kind of like key to his his main ideas here. In, in particular, in the book, he describes the Altanen antenna and briefly explains why he thinks humans couldn't have made it and doesn't even mention the possibility of organic origin, even to dispute it. Like, it doesn't even say anything like, well, this, some people think this might be an organism, but it's not, or it doesn't look like an organism. There's none of that. He describes it as a, quote, bit of ironmongery, unquote, that no humans could have possibly placed. Okay, so as he presents, it's just axiomatic. This is made of metal, and it's, it's some piece of technology. And the question is, could it be human or must it be other than human? And here's the argument why it could not be human. Right. He, uh, in the book, he writes the following, quote, It would be interesting to know what the Americans have made of that picture and whether any attempt has been made to salvage the strange object they photographed by accident. In view of my earlier sighting in the uh, Kaipara Harbor, I was willing to accept that the aerial had been placed there by an unidentified submarine object, or USO. Can you offer a better explanation? Some of the writers who prefer an alien explanation specifically uh, cite the claim that, well, it was too far down on the bottom of the ocean for a human-made submarine, any human-made submarine at that time, to have deposited it. Submarines couldn't go that deep. And uh, I, I don't want to, I'm not mocking here or anything, but I mean, I do kind of think, could you not think of another way that like a piece of metal could made by humans could have gotten to the bottom of the ocean other than being deposited by a deep-sea submersible? Yeah, it seems like there's a rather obvious way to get something down there, right? Otherwise, you'd have to say the same thing about, like, metal drums and, and barrels and stuff that end up at the bottom of the ocean. I mean, there's gravity. Things can fall yeah. to the bottom. I guess there is some reasoning militating against this that says, well, but it's standing upright, though I guess you could explain that just by, like, it being weighted a certain way. Yeah, okay. for, for, for Kathy, his argument seems to be, well, okay, you could probably get some sort of submersible down there, but you wouldn't be able to do this kind of work. So um, still, he, I agree. It seems like it doesn't seem like that logic would necessarily rule it out. But anyway, elsewhere in the book, he frequently comes back to the Altenan antenna as being part of this elaborate global energy grid. And he also connects the knobs or its apparent knobs to objects described on the bottoms of UFOs. So if you were encountering images of 
this artifact, this um, this object, or this antenna uh, in this book, or in books inspired by it, or in the same sort of realm? Um, I you could you might well think, well, this is this is truly a mystery, and we've got to go back there and find it someday, or maybe we won't find it because someone else has already come and 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 harvested it, et cetera. Uh, so you can imagine how this kind of takes up and uh, takes up uh, this energy and becomes this, uh, again, this kind of like icon within the realm of like paranormal UFO investigation. But as we have teased now multiple times, there's really not much of a question anymore what it actually is. And this is the result of marine biologists weighing in. That's right. Uh, and, and that's one of the, the key things about this one is that if you're looking at individuals that actually have, you know, the expertise um, uh, regarding things that might appear on the ocean floor in this part of the world, yeah, there seems to be no mystery. And there hasn't been any mystery for, for decades and decades. In particular, uh, the, uh, I mentioned earlier how there's this, um, the horizontal version of the image, and then there's this wider version of the image that, you know, hasn't been cropped. This appears in a 1971 book uh, titled The Face of the Deep. This was published by Oxford University Press, and it was authored by Heason, uh, Bruce C. Heason and Charles D. Hollister. This book was not a UFOlogy work, but rather set out to present, quote, a selection of the best photographs of the deep sea floor for you to look at and contemplate, which maybe wasn't taking it far enough because, you know, uh, it's Bruce, Kathy, and others were certainly contemplating it, uh, but they were going off in an entirely different direction. In the book, they note that about one-third of the photographs in the book were obtained, uh, quote, over the past few years in Antarctic waters by the National Science Foundation's research ship, Eltanen. All right, so what do they say about the photo in question? All right, well, the, the caption for the photo and uh, alone says, note antenna-like sponge, cladoriza, in the lower photograph. All right, so not only are they noting this is an animal, it is a sponge, they they specify a genus name, which was at the time Cladoriza. Now, uh, as a kind of confusing note, it seems to me that the same animal they're talking about, this type of sponge, was at the time taxonomized in the genus Cladoriza. So it was known as Cladoriza uh, concretions. But now the same species is sorted into a different genus, and it's known as chondrocladia concretions. Yeah, and this sort of thing's fairly common. Yeah, uh, things get differently taxonomized when, uh, when they get further studied. Now, elsewhere in the book, The Face of the Deep, the authors uh, go into a little more detail. They write, quote, While the bath sponges uh, are limited to the warmest shallow waters of the continental shelf, a few of their bizarre relatives are rather commonly found in the deep sea. Clatoriza, a particularly dramatic one, which sometimes resembles a space-age microwave antenna, was not uncommon in the early dredge halls of Challenger and Blake. Alexander Agassiz observed that, quote, they are sponges with a long stem ending in ramifying roots sunk deeply in the mud. The stem has nodes with four to six club-like appendages. They evidently cover, like bushes, extensive tracts of the bottom. Now, a couple of notes here about uh, what they're referring to. Um, Alexander Agassiz lived 1835 through 1910. He was a noted Swiss-American scientist and inventor. Uh, he was also a rather infamous supporter of scientific racism, but his contributions in non-human biology and geology of the time seem, seem pretty sound. 
And the Challenger there would be referring to the Challenger expedition, which we've talked about on the show before. I think maybe mm-hmm. we talked about it uh, in the context of like uh, maybe William Beebe or something. Yeah, I think so. Some uh, you know, deep sea exploration, dredging up uh, life forms and so forth from the bottom. Right. But this would have been in the 19th century. So like a long time ago, but they're 19th century ships like running sort of uh, devices along the seafloor to try to pull things up and see what's down there. Yeah. So at this point, this particular species had been known about for decades. It, it was it was this was not like, oh, this is some unknown creature. No, they they when when people who knew what they were talking about looked at it, they were able to match it up with some um, with some actual organisms in, in the record book. Right. Well, people who who knew about deep sea sponges would know what they were looking at. But to the average person, it just looks like a really weird shape that could well be an antenna. Like you wouldn't expect any just the regular person off the street to recognize this species of sponge. Right. Yeah. This is specialized information to be to be clear. Now, in the book, they note that the the photo in question in a zoomed in horizontal version is of, quote, a bizarre antenna like abyssal sponge, which, quote, stands erect, towering over the manganese nodules in the Bellingshausen Basin, South Pacific. There were apparently 16 different images from this location. And again, uh, remember, we were talking about how those images were taken. They were kind of like fired off automatically by this, uh, uh, this like large capsule being pulled at depth behind a, the ship. Uh, but of those 16 images, only one image captured this sponge. Now, it's mentioned that this often uh, that the sponge is often found in sort of little forests on the seafloor where there there would be others of the same type surrounding it. In this case, it was standing alone. And I wonder how it would have been received differently if there were other similarly shaped objects all around it. Yeah, it's an interesting question, because on one hand, you can imagine exactly the same thing occurring. Uh, but you could also make an argument that, yes, by standing alone, it and you know, standing out uh, on this uh, the seafloor scape around it made it more iconic, made it more mysterious seeming. But the authors here note that while the Challenger and Blake expeditions dredged in an area with considerably more of these, uh, yeah, this one does seem to have stood alone. Um, Agassiz drew the uh, the sponge uh, you know, in illustrations with drooping or arching limbs, curved in either case. While this image shows the organism erect with horizontally positioned appendages, they also note that, quote, the tops of the appendages show up so brightly in the photographs to suggest they are either of an extremely light color or that they phosphoresce. So I think that's uh, but that's that's a good point. We'll probably come back to that. But um, also this whole idea of, well, Agassiz drew it one way and it looks a different way. I mean, that that pretty much matches up with a lot of what we've talked about regarding deep sea organisms. If you dredge them up for the deep or pull them up, even in uh, I mean, even in a like a cage or something, um, there's a lot that can happen on its way to the surface. You're taking it out of one environment and bringing it into a drastically different one. Um, all sorts of things can occur, de- you know, uh, decompression, um, explosions, and so forth. So it's not that crazy to imagine that, well, it looked different once they had dredged it up from the bottom as opposed to how it is positioned in its natural habitat. Absolutely. Yeah. Changes in pressure, changes in temperature and possibly damage caused just by whatever device you're using to remove it from its habitat and drag it up. Right.
The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So we're, we're at an interesting point here with this one because on one hand, the paranormal, the, the UFO explanation for this is weird and strange and tantalizing. But then the natural world explanation is equally, if not more, um, uh, amazing and strange and tantalizing. But of course, you have to, you certainly in, in, in decades past, you had to have specialized information or access to uh, scientific data to, to, to be able to really um, get an understanding of, um, of the natural world explanation for this object. And, uh, and perhaps in some circles, the paranormal explanation is going to be a little easier to get your hands on. I think that's right. And it, it, it's also important to emphasize 
how easy it is to look at some things in nature and just say, well, that looks really weird. I've never seen anything like that in nature, so it must not be natural. And so I, I think it is time to take a short diversion just to talk about sponges and sponges that look like machines or sponges that look <laughs> like aliens. Yeah. So again, the identification of the Eltanen object as a specimen of chondrocladia concrescens or concretions seems pretty much rock solid to me. Like that, mm. that's almost got to be what it was. But I thought it would be worth it to look at some other sponges as well, especially carnivorous sponges, uh, of which this species is an example. Con concrescens is a carnivorous sponge. So, Rob, let's look at a photo of a different but closely related species of sponge. Uh, I've got one for you to look at here for, for you people at home. I will describe it. So this is a species from the same genus, both from Chondrocladia. This one is Chondrocladia lyra, or the lyre sponge, or more commonly, I think, the harp sponge. Now, I dare say that in, in some photos, this animal looks even more like technology than its cousin, looks even more like technology than concrescens. Oh, yeah. This one is a really weird-looking organism. Um like I instantly think about the um, the various um, illustrations of supposed alien life that one sees in the art of Wayne Barlow, you know that, mm. that fantastic illustrator of uh, of monsters and aliens, but also uh, pa uh, uh, paleontology as well. He also did some wonderful dinosaur illustrations. But some of his stuff looks this wild and believable, but not you know not something of this world. Can you imagine the hype you could churn up around a good? grainy or blurry, low-resolution photo of this creature if it had not yet been identified. It looks like a device that one of James Bond's enemies would use to generate a deadly field of rays. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I'll try to, if you're not able to look it up, again, it's called the harp sponge or chondrocladia lyra, uh, but I'll try to describe it as plainly as I can. So it is a creature made up of multiple intersecting horizontal veins that run parallel to the seafloor. So imagine a, a pattern of intersecting sort of bars or branches that run along the, the bottom of the ocean. Uh, you can think of these as kind of base bars. And they could just be a couple of veins running basically in a line symmetrically at the base, or there might be many of these veins intersecting. Uh, in the photo we're looking at, there are five intersecting veins arranged in a star pattern. This base structure is anchored to the sediment at the bottom with a root-like structure called a rhizoid, and then jutting straight up at 90-degree angles from the base veins are the branches, and these are arranged like the bars of a wrought iron fence. It looks like a metal fence standing straight up, evenly spaced and parallel to each other, so they look like a fence or an array of antenna parts or some other electronic device. And on some of these animals, the branches gradually increase in height as they get closer to the middle of the star. So out at the ends of the veins, the branches are very short, and then they slope gently up, uh, smooth slope toward the middle so that the fence posts or the, the antenna bars form a pyramid shape with these these smooth sloping edges going up to the middle what on earth would you make of a blurry photograph of this thing oh yeah i would see it would clearly feel like nothing of this earth like some sort of a strange um, radar array or something or sonar array placed on the bottom of the ocean by who knows what oh and then also uh they're on the top of these little 
posts, their their bulbs. Apparently, those are sperm sacs. But uh, this species was first described in the literature in a paper from 2012, published in the journal Invertebrate Biology. So 2012, there'd been a photo of this thing, grainy photo from decades ago. You wouldn't even have any knowledge to compare it to. Uh, So to cite the paper, it was by uh, Welton L. Lee, Henry M. Reiswig, William C. Austin, and Lonnie Lundstein. It was called An Extraordinary New Carnivora Sponge, Chondrocladia lyra, in the new subgenus Symmetrocladia from off of Northern California, USA. A few notes from the paper here. They say it was uh, observed, quote, from Northeast Pacific sites at the Escanaba Ridge and Monterey Canyon at depths of uh, 3316 to 3399 meters. And the scientists describe the structure like this. They say, quote, the basic structure, termed a vein, is harp or lyre-shaped. From one to six veins extend by radial growth from the organism's center. The orientation among the veins is approximately equiangular, such that together they display pentaradiate, tetraradiate, triradiate, or biradiate symmetries. Each vein is formed by a horizontal stolon supporting a series of upright, equidistantly spaced branches, each of which terminates at its apex in a swollen ball in all observed specimens except the paratype. So the veins, um, they can be oriented as a sort of two-sided comb or with three arms or four or five, always roughly radially symmetrical. Uh, now, the big question I, I think worth asking is, why would it be shaped like this? Like, why does it look that way? Why would evolution make a weird-looking animal that could be a sort of technomorph structure? Well, a passage from this paper illuminates that. It says, quote, A linear row of filaments project from the sides, front, and back of each branch, and also from the tops of each stolon. Enclosed crustacean prey on branches and stolons provide direct evidence of carnivory. The structure of the veins maximizes surface area for passive suspension feeding. Mm -hmm. So this sponge is a predator. It is a carnivore feeding by catching small animal prey in the filaments that extend between these branches, between the posts of the wrought iron fence, the little catch hooks that spread out between the bars. And if you zoom in close enough on any of the pictures, you can see the little filaments, these little hair-like hooks. And of course, the scientists say that they found uh, tiny half-digested remnants of uh, crustaceans, of animals caught in those branches. Mm. I was reading a press release about this uh, research from the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, which was involved in the discovery. And uh, the release was written by Dana Lacano, and they write, quote, Clinging with root-like rhizoids to the soft, muddy sediment, the harp sponge captures tiny animals that are swept into its branches by deep sea currents. Typically, sponges feed by straining bacteria and bits of organic material from the seawater they filter through their bodies. However, carnivorous harp sponges snare their prey, tiny crustaceans with barbed hooks that cover the sponge's branching limbs. Once the harp sponge has the prey in its clutches, it envelops the animal in a thin membrane, then slowly begins to digest it. 
So when you look at it with this in mind, the design makes perfect sense. It looks like some kind of antenna array or a fence or something else because it's trying to maximize surface area for catching things swimming or flowing through the water. It wants to spread out a, sort of a net across the sea currents and to catch prey, but also the authors say the the animal surface area is uh, is sort of spread out and maximized like that for spermatophore capture. So it helps the sponge reproduce. Hmm. And then I was reading, so what are the branches on the original L-tannin organism for? You know, the, the branches coming off of the so-called antenna that is identified as chondrocladia concrescens, those are also for feeding. They also have filaments coming off of them that catch prey and help cover it in a membrane and digest it. So really, in a, in a way, you could compare them to an antenna because they are uh, they're spread out to collect. Uh, but instead of collecting, uh, you know, waves or transmissions they're coll- or information, they're collecting prey. They're collecting these tiny crustaceans. Oh, and I guess in a weird way, they also could be like a transmitting antenna because they are releasing sperm from oh, the yeah, uh, yeah. from the sperm sacs at the top and then collecting it uh, along the for, for reproduction purposes. Yeah. Now, I did want to mention just a couple of other sponges to sort of drive home the weirdness of all of this. Um, another wor- sponge worth mentioning here is um, Advena magnifica. Uh, that's Latin, f- apparently, for magnificent alien named in 2020 uh, after explorations in the Pacific by the NOAA ship Okinos Explorer. Uh, this is a quote from uh, an NOAA article about this. Quote, among the different sponges within this alien-like community, was one that could not be missed. Rising high on a stalk, this sponge had a body with two large holes oddly reminiscent of the large eyes of the alien from the beloved movie E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Uh, I included uh, comparison images here for you, Joe, in case you don't remember what E.T. looks like and you want to know what the E.T. sponge looks like here. It, it's uncanny. I mean, I th- it's they're copying Steven Spielberg. <laughs> this is just, it is E.T.'s head. Um, it's maybe less, <laughs> it's, it's not one-to-one, but you can see it. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, this one doesn't look like a machine. This one doesn't look like an antenna and it only, I guess a little bit looks like ET's head, but still, you know, we're dealing with organisms that by their very nature feel entirely alien to us. And in this case, they just went ahead and named it after an alien. Now, I also suppose I need to mention, uh, SpongeBob SquarePants and all of this, um, <laughs> The cartoon character is, if you're not familiar with him, a a sentient talking sponge, and his shape and coloration are clearly based on the common artificial bright yellow cleaning sponge. So not, uh, you know, um, upper depth depth sponges that are harvested and used for sponges, but of course the the artificial kind that are manufactured to, uh, you know, to help us clean our dishes and so forth. And that's always been kind of the clear joke here with SpongeBob SquarePants. Uh, But interestingly enough, in 2021, NOAA's North Atlantic Stepping Stones expedition happened to snap a high-quality photograph a mile beneath the waves of a, not a perfect square, but a very square-like bright yellow sponge. And beside it, there's a sea star that it doesn't look exactly like SpongeBob SquarePants' friend Patrick, but enough like Patrick to where people were like, behold, we have found him. What are the odds? Yeah. Um, it also should be pointed out that it, it doesn't have pants on, uh, but it is square. It, the, the color seems right. It's pretty eye-catching. Uh, it is a yellow glass sponge of the genus Hertwigia. 
I'm going to read, uh, this is from a National Museum of Natural History article from 2021 by Chris Ma. Quote, the yellow Hertwigia sponge is what's known as a hexantitalid or glass sponge that is composed of biologically secreted silica or glass. Its bright yellow color is unusual for deep sea animals, which are often white or orange. Many sponges have strong chemical defenses, which uh, have made them very intriguing to pharmaceutical and other biochemical industries. Mm. Also of note from this article is that um, the sea star here that is, uh, is sometimes referred to as Patrick, um, this is a possibly new species of uh, Kronzraster, and it is likely about to attempt to eat the sponge. So, <laughs> so if this is SpongeBob SquarePants, yeah, Patrick is about to eat SpongeBob. That would be a good plot twist. Yes. I don't know how horrifying that is. I, I'm not a SpongeBob watcher. Would, would I don't know. SpongeBob is pretty weird, so I don't think it's it's necessarily out of character. There may be an episode where Patrick tries to eat SpongeBob. I mean, this is the show that gave us stuff like uh, Handsome Squidward and so forth. Okay, so sponges are, are very weird and can look very weird in multiple ways. They can look like known cartoon characters. They can look like known alien characters. They can look like weird, suggestive, unknown technology. Uh, they're all over the map. But I want to add another fact onto this, which is anytime you see an object in the ocean and you are tempted to say, this looks weird and it doesn't look like any known organism, so it can't be biological, keep in mind another fact. There are organisms in the ocean that have never been photographed, never been described, documented, or classified. There are lots of creatures we don't know about yet. And you might think, yeah, well, but I mean, we've probably found most of them, right? I mean, how many could there be out there that nobody's ever seen before? Well, I dug up a paper from 2011 that was just trying to estimate and it wasn't commenting on aliens or anything. It was just trying to answer a basic question, which was how many yet unidentified species are there? Out, out there in the world that, that we have not documented yet. Uh, so the paper was called How Many Species Are There on Earth and in the Ocean in uh, PLOS Biology in 2011 by Camillo Mora et al., and the, from the author's summary, they say, quote, here we document that the taxonomic classification of subspecies into higher taxonomic groups from genera to phyla follows a consistent pattern from which the total number of species in any taxonomic group can be predicted. So, Rob, does that make sense? They're like, we don't have a way to count the species that haven't been found yet, but you can come up with a pretty good estimate of how many mm -hmm. are out there because we know from like the tree of the sort of the bush of life in a way, how phyla break down, you can form reasonable estimates of how many organisms are in each group. And so just what we know about the higher parts of the branches, you can guess how many are out there that haven't been documented yet. And their estimate is, quote, assessment of this pattern for all kingdoms of life on Earth predicts about 8.7 million, plus or minus an, uh, an error of 1.3 million species globally, of which about 2.2 million, plus or minus an error of 0 0.18 million, are marine. Our hmm. results suggest that uh, some 86% of species on Earth and 91% in the ocean still await description. Oh, wow. So there, there is room for just about everything down there. We may find handsome squid. <laughs> Maybe. 
91%. That is, that is still a lot of room to see something bizarre in the ocean that matches the appearance of nothing known to marine biology uh, and then have it turn out to be another sponge <laughs> or just turn yeah. out to be another uh, Nidarian or another weird crustacean. Remember again that that uh, uh, Chondrocladia lyra, the harp sponge, the one that looks, in our opinion, even more like technology than the Altanen object, was first described in the scientific literature in the last decade or so. The first articles for, were from like 2012. Yeah, that's a great point. I also couldn't help but think about the the giant squid in all of this because giant squid, based on um, an, an expert analysis, they, they seem to be abundant enough in the sea that sperm whales eat them by the millions, perhaps even hundreds of millions each year. And yet, we don't know their true numbers. We didn't have any footage of a living giant squid until the 21st century, and mostly knew of them from their remains or the scars on the outside or the inside of, of sperm whales. Uh, you know, it's a highly novel organism. In this case, it's a pretty big organism, but it's an elusive one that lives in a, an extreme environment and ultimately illustrates how little we know, even if we think we know. That is a really excellent point. Uh, but so I want to come back to thinking about information in uh, allegedly anomalous photographs or videos or other things that are used as evidence for alien intelligence or alien technology or other paranormal phenomena. It seems to me that the, the photograph of the Eltanen object could inspire the belief that it was uh, an antenna or was a piece of alien technology because of certain low information conditions. So it's a fairly low resolution photograph, it's kind of grainy black and white photograph, or actually in the ways it's reproduced, it's uh, black and white. I don't know what it was in the original. Uh, I don't know if I've ever seen, I don't, I've never seen like a color original of it. Yeah, I, I've just seen the black and white. But so in, in various ways, it's low resolution. And it was being shared among people who didn't have important informational context, like knowledge of what types of deep sea sponges there were and what they look like. So it's in this low information environment with lack of important context and lack of resolution in the photo that it seems viable. This could be an alien antenna. But like if you had gotten a really sharp photograph of this original thing, even if you didn't have deep sea knowledge, you'd probably be able to look at it and say, ah, just like the textures on it, this does look more like something organic. This is some kind yeah. of organism. And likewise, if the people originally looking at it had had knowledge of deep sea sponges that already existed at the time the photo was taken, they would have been able to say, oh, yeah, this is one of those sponges. So low information or low resolution is really it, it creates a friendly environment for uh, for paranormal explanations and mythologies to arise around a, a piece of media or a piece of evidence. And Rob, I wonder what you think about this. I kind of wonder if this is why underwater photos in particular are so popular in this uh, in this sort of media domain, in the, you know, uh, fringe and alternative uh, uh, conspiracy theory domain. There are so many uh, videos that are like, you know, mysterious objects underwater that are based on like a sonar image or a kind of murky photograph taken underwater where you can't really tell exactly what you're looking at, but it looks weird. And so it just like invites you to start applying strange stories to it. Yeah. And you have, and also just trying to interpret what you're seeing based on things you have seen before. And in some cases, 
your mind is going to turn to technology or architecture, and those are going to be the the forms that you use to try and make sense of this 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 new confusing information. The one thing I do want to call out, in fact, I found this to be true with the Altanen antenna and true with a bunch of these other underwater things. There will be like the original image that inspired the all the speculation, and then there will be modified, doctored, or fully faked versions of that image where people have added in new information to make it look more like whatever they're saying it is. So they're like versions of the Altanen antenna that are not the original image that somebody made to look like an antenna. Yeah, yeah, they're enhancing on their own. But um, you, you see that with, uh, yeah, with this, uh, this photo, but also other photographs as well. Uh, and honestly, it can become a little confusing in our modern, uh, you know, Google image search world because you'll look up something like this and you'll, you'll find, hopefully you'll still find those original images. Generally, the original image is going to be what's grounded on any Wikipedia article. But uh, it, on other wikis, um, then it's kind of up in the air. You may find that original image right next to these uh, enhanced images and, and artist interpretations of what it might look like if it were an antenna built by aliens, if this other thing was a spaceship, if this other thing was uh, the work of ancient aliens. And yeah, it can be kind of, uh, it, it can be kind of confusing, I think. You know, there are some other interesting underwater anomaly images that uh, that have actually pretty uh, pretty good scientific tie-ins that we, we can maybe even come back to next week if you wanted yeah I think that could be that could be fun there's also um, there's a, there are also a couple of examples from um, ancient Egypt that are, are often uh, misinterpreted that have fascinating um, you know actual stories uh, without having to drag uh, ancient technology and ancient aliens into the scenario perhaps we will return to this subject in the near future all right. But for now, we're going to go ahead and close out. And uh, we'll just remind you, uh, hey, if you want to listen to other core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find them on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We have Lister Mail on Monday, Short Form Artifact or Monster Fact on Wednesday. And on Fridays, we set aside most uh, serious concerns to talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. Uh, also, a reminder, if you're listening to us in the UK and you want to listen on... Uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, make sure you have, you, you've, you've sought out that Stuff to Blow Your Mind UK feed. It's going to be important to make sure you're following that. Huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, JJ Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com.
Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.